If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would encourage you to have a Bible, have it open. Put one finger in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where we've been, and that's kind of the highlight verse of our whole series. But also, if you'd put a finger in 1 Corinthians 11, we will be spending actually the majority of our time there this morning. So as I've already mentioned, we're in part four of this message. Uh, We will be celebrating communion as well as you've probably seen on the screens and the previews and in our e-newsletter at the completion of the message today because this message is all about the Lord's Supper. And that's what we want to look at today. And so we've basically, uh, we've already uh, established that the reason why or the primary reason why we're doing this series is because as we were praying here this morning, just the few of us that are here this morning to put on the service for you, to engage you in, in the gathering of the church with us, um, it's, it's been like nine, ten months. And uh, this pandemic has, has resulted in the fact that we, we cannot gather, come together, as you will see in the words today, as the church in the way that we love to do, which is in person so that we can see each other and, yes, hug each other and, uh, and worship together in this place and, and be in the Word together and break bread together. So, w- we wanted to ask in this series, as we finish this week and next, what have we learned? We're reviewing what it means to be the church uh, from the example of the early church so that we can look forward this year and ask ourselves the question, what have we learned? Where should we go from here? So, one of the things we've already discovered, obviously, is from the day the church was birthed, they began a pattern of gatherings in such a way that all five to 6,000 in the very first few days of the church were continually devoted, continually, all of them continually devoted to four specific acts of worship. I am sure, certain, as some of you have been asking and talking about, they were doing other things too. But these were the keys when they gathered together as the church, specifically as a church. And so we've already learned they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to sharing that teaching, not just leaving it on one man or the apostles, per se, to do all the teaching. They would hear, and then they would teach others. They would pass it on and share. Secondly, they were devoted to this beautiful thing that we looked at last week, this koinonia fellowship. Uh, that intangible and very visible ways, at least in that day, demonstrated the unifying power of the Holy Spirit that had come upon all of them and filled all of them, but also the answer to the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, that they would be one. In fact, His prayer to His heavenly Father was that they would be perfectly one. And I'm sure if you study the first few months of the church, it certainly appears Utopian. It it appears like they really, really were. And so, as we will see today, the breaking of bread is the next, and then finally, next week, we will look at their devotion to the prayers. So, their devotion to the Word and to one another was something that actually became, and we've learned this, their primary act of evangelism. I mean, we know the Scripture says they they will know you by your fruits, but they will also know you by how you love one another. It's passionate, it's palpable, but it's also a reality. They are together all the time and caring for one another all the time. So, we saw from Jesus' prayer that it was their unity in diversity, men and women from every nation under heaven, 
every nation, tongue, and tribe, which will be what we will see, and you see in the book of Revelation, will be what we see in eternity when Jesus comes again. People, whether they were Jewish, whether they were Greek, whether they were black, Asian, no matter what color, whether they were white, of course, whether the, uh, this religious background or that religious background, rich or poor, they were perfectly devoted to one another in this koinonia fellowship. They were radically committed to one another in ways that honestly, think about it, it's hard for us to replicate for some reason in the church today. So their strength was also this. They, they truly believed that they were part of this blood-bought family. They understood that in a palpable way. And their brothers and sisters in the family became their primary focus. And, and listen, that became very evident to their flesh and blood family members. I know, listen, I know for most of us in our world and culture today and in the church, it's, it's, it's hard to get a grasp of this. Uh, I mean, sometimes we think that, yes, we look back and we think that that's, that's just a utopian situation and uh, it's not the same as for today. But, or maybe it's because we don't realize how difficult and challenging it actually was for them in that day. Again, let's remember the, the context, the, the days that we're talking about here. We're talking about 60, maybe 90 days at the most past the point when all of these men and women who are now in faith and part of the blood-bought family of Jesus were standing in unison with their mothers and fathers and their brothers and sisters yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And now they're professing faith in him as the Messiah and getting baptized all over Jerusalem? That did not go down well with their Jewish brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and grandparents. In fact, what didn't go down very well at all was they, they, they basically left home. They only wanted to be, the evidence would appear, with their blood-bought family. A lot of tensions built up over the next 30 to 40 years between the, the Jewish people who did not believe in Jesus and their brothers and sisters who did. I mean, imagine the next Passover, right? This is the Passover week that we're going to be looking at here today. Imagine the next Passover a year later, and, and your mother and father and grandparents go, hey, you coming home for Passover? Hey, we'd really like to have you. And instead, they're saying to their family members, actually, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to celebrate Good Friday with our church family and Resurrection Sunday that week. Okay, they didn't have a formal Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday in that day, but I do believe they would have preferred to gather on the first day of the week on Sunday with their church family. And so one of our key verses for this series I want to put up on screen for you now is, of course, our key verse before we look at our passage for today, just to remind us, and it is this. It is Acts 2.42, where Luke records, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, this beautiful koinonia, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so as I was praying about this and thinking about this, there's lots to talk about just in the verses that we've been looking at, but I really thought that it would be important for us to maybe look at 1 Corinthians 11, uh, uh, because I believe it will help us understand the breaking of bread for us in the church today more deeply and possibly better. So I'm going to begin reading in verses 17. 
this morning, and then I'll pray one more time before we have a look at Paul's words. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have homes, houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll pause there. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, uh, we, uh, we are entering into sacred and holy ground this morning. So, so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, uh, you would help me a lot this morning to speak these words. The words that you've given to me are whatever you will give to me now, but also, Lord, that you would help all of us to hear. Hear you well. Hear you well. So that we may, like this early church, be continually devoted to the breaking of bread. I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. So for those of you who like taking notes, I actually have some points today. I think there are five points today. The first is going to be, we're going to look at the institution and the history of the breaking of bread. So interesting, what we've just read is an interesting fact, actually predates the writing of the book of Acts by Luke. Paul wrote the letter to the church in Corinth in approximately 55 to 58 AD, so that's approximately 20 to 25 years after Jesus has ascended and the birth of the church, while Luke wrote his gospel, followed by the book of Acts, in approximately AD 60 to 62. I believe it's important for us to understand that and note that for two reasons. First, Luke is the only one who uses the words breaking of bread. He uses it in relation to the two on the road to Emmaus and in his gospel in chapter 24, who... who, who understood and knew who Jesus was in the breaking of the bread. And then also, of course, here in Acts 2 that we've been looking at. 
It was a phrase that, of course, in the early church, they really did use, which is why Luke used it. But as we see here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church approximately 25 years after the church in Acts is birthed. And here, Paul repeatedly refers to it as the Lord's Supper, as they do, as Paul does in other epistles, and Peter does, and James does as well. This name was a result of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record which is literally Jesus' last meal, His last supper, before He was betrayed and crucified. The Lord's Supper is also known in the church as communion. Now, the second reason I wanted to note when Paul wrote this letter is to point out that after, after 25 years, it would appear that the meaning, the purpose, and the importance of the Lord's Supper had either become forgotten or was being completely ignored. This then is important for us today as we consider this act of worship, the breaking of bread. That's a little background of the institution history. And the second point for today is I want to look at the question of who actually participates, who participates in the breaking of bread. In the first verse, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. I'll put it on screen for you. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So one of the things that's commonly known about 1 and 2 Corinthians uh, is that they are uh, termed corrective letters. Paul is writing to a church that on the one hand is growing, is awesome, has the charismatic gifts on display in unbelievable ways, which is another thing that he has to correct them about because in some ways they're getting out of hand. And so Paul believes he needs to write these letters to them, and he does often in response to questions that they have already sent him from the elders most likely to correct them. In so doing, he also outlines for the church in every age the centrality of the cross and I believe the sacredness of the Lord's Supper. You'll note that he he calls his words that this passage begins with as instructions. (laughs) These are like rules and regulations. These are instructions. But you'll also notice in the first verse, Well, we'll see actually in a second. The first verse, Paul also lets us know who, in fact, is called to participate in the Lord's Supper. Those who participate are those who make up the church, those who are believers in Jesus Christ. We see that throughout this passage that we've looked at already, and we'll look at some more verses in conclusion. But we see a repeated use of the words, come together, when you come together, when you come together. He is speaking specifically about the church. And then in verse 18, he makes it actually really clear, but he goes on to something also which is very interesting, which we need to see this morning, related to correction. In verse 18, he says, for listen, in the first place, when you come together as a church, so there you have it, it's very clear, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. So he begins his word of correction in a very interesting fashion, to say the least. He points out that there are divisions in the local church. I mean, really? Yeah. 
20 to 25 years, probably this started much earlier in the life of the church, there are divisions. So that's interesting, isn't it, since we know that the early church that we've been looking at the last few weeks continually devoted themselves to one another in such a way that, that, that the hallmark of their relationship and their evangelism was on display, their unity and their perfect oneness. So Paul instructs here that this must be dealt with. His instructions indicate that as an apostle, as a church planter, as an elder, listen, divisions must be dealt with, especially when they surround the four acts of worship related to what the church does when it gathers. So he goes on to say, however, that there is one benefit to this division. I remember reading that for the first time many, many years ago, going, really, really, seriously, there's a benefit to division in the local church? Well, yes, Paul says that it is an opportunity for those who are genuine among you to rise up and demonstrate their leadership in the local church. Now, most often these would be, of course, the church elders, but not exclusively. It would also be any man or woman in the local church who genuinely holds to the apostles' teaching, to the Word of God, and then exhorts and rebukes, if necessary, that brother or sister in the church family to correct them in their faith and walk with Jesus and the church. Now, we, we love doing that today, don't we? Don't, don't you love that? Don't you love that when a brother or a sister corrects you and brings the Scripture to bear and teaches you, wait a second, what you're believing and thinking and, and, and leaning towards is, is false? And, and, and or there's actual discipline in the local church towards a member of the church or to an individual that is behaving in such a way? We love that, don't we? Actually, that's not my experience. My experience is that elders, pastors, those who are genuine and actually do that risk Distancing, and even worse, people unfriending them or even leaving the church. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, church, and another bit of instruction. I, I've got to believe that the author is Paul, but we're not sure. But he says this, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. You see, that's the point of correction and division. It's care of your soul. It's not about a theological argument as much. I mean, it can be. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. I like that phrase. For that would be of no disadvantage to you. What would be of disadvantage to you? If there was no joy in them correcting you and disciplining you. Paul goes on to list what needs to be corrected and leads with this. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Full on. <laughs> Listen, what you're doing is not even remotely close to what we would call the Lord's Supper. They've gone so far off track, it would appear, that they don't even know it at this point. They've just lost complete focus. Then in verse 21, he lists the main offense. The main offense is that some of them are going ahead and eating literally a full meal, like having a banquet, before others even arrive. So they're not even waiting for one another. So the koinonia fellowship thing, it's, 
you know, no, well, listen, uh, my little clique, my, my small group is here, or my friends are here, so let's just get started. Who cares waiting about those, for those other people? Most commentators would also agree that it would appear that those who were wealthier or richer were the ones doing this, and they were consuming all that there was there before the poor or less fortunate could get there and enjoy it. And in some cases, they were actually getting drunk. So, so listen, and I don't want to debate this today, we're not. We have juice here for our communion this morning, but it's pretty hard to get drunk on grape juice, right? So, so the, the reality is, is that it's most likely the fruit of the vine, which is the only phrase that we know of in the Bible that describes the element that is used in the communion service, was in fact real wine. However, it doesn't have to be. It's an element that helps us to remember, as we will do today. So it's interesting what we see here. Then Paul says this. Literally, the Greek is it's hard to communicate because even in our English language, he says, what? Now, most of us want to go, what with a question mark? But the reason why they put it in our translations, what with an exclamation mark, is because the Greek is extremely emphatic. What are you doing? Upon receiving this letter, Paul's kind of doing the work of the elders, isn't he? He's doing the rebuking because this would have been read in the local church. Do you not have homes or houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Oh. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I won't. I will not, Paul says. So we've seen in this second point how we participate, I mean, probably who should participate. It's for those who are in the local church. It's for those who are saved by the blood of Christ and know it. But it's also for those who are devoted to Him and to His church. Thirdly, I want to look at this morning, and Paul shows us how we should participate in the breaking of bread, in the Lord's Supper. In verses 23 and 24, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. In two of the three gospel records, they record Jesus saying, this is my body which is given, given for you. Jesus then says, do this in remembrance of me. So first, I believe it's really important to see what Paul says first of all. He makes it clear that these are not his own thoughts or his own instructions or his own rules and regulations. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul has said this repeatedly in some of his other epistles, that what I'm, what I'm speaking to you here now is direct revelation, direct communication from Jesus himself. On other occasions, he, he actually says, on one occasion that I'm aware of, he says, okay, this is not from Jesus, but this is from me. I'll give you my opinion on this, my teaching on this. So he's pretty clear about these things. But he also is saying in these words, listen, this is what I first taught you, and this is what I've been continually teaching you. And yet you've, you've moved away 
I've done this over and over again. He then tells us what Jesus told him on the night before he was betrayed. So this took place after they had a full meal, Jesus and his disciples, the twelve, the Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples enjoyed together on the night before he was betrayed, before his death on the cross. And it is here where we learn the first way in which we participate. Jesus himself is saying, remember. We participate in the breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper by remembering. And so when we're doing that, we're not sitting in a church gathering or even here, a few of us now, or some of you at home right now, and checking our text messages or or thinking about other things. No, no, no. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, we are focusing. We are remembering Jesus. So Jesus said, this bread represents my body, which is given for you, my body instead of yours, which will be sacrificed. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. That's a command for us. And, And so, friends, what we need to remember is when we gather around the table to participate in the breaking of bread, we are to have our minds focusing on nothing else in the beginning and the first element, but on Jesus' body and how His body on that Friday was pierced for our transgressions. First with a crown of thorns, then with brutal whipping, scourging, and beatings, and then with nails driven through most likely his wrists into the cross and his feet to secure him barely, to hold him on that cross long enough for his lungs to give out, to be filled with water so that he would suffocate his body. And finally, a sword would be used to pierce his side to finish him off. We're also to remember the mocking of the crowds and his last words, which we sang today. It is finished. It's fully finished. That's what we're to remember. That's that's what Jesus feels is incredibly important for us to, as a church, as believers, as disciples, to remember. He also asks us to remember Him in this way. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we remember His blood that was shed for us. We remember that it begun to ooze out of his head from the crown of thorns. There have been some movie depictions of it, and some people are like, well, that's, come on, that, that's excessive. Unlikely. Some of them are n- not true enough. That's where the blood began to flow. 
And then they were beating, whipping, and piercing his body. So much so that his blood flowed and flowed until the last blow, when again they pierced his side and blood and water poured out. He wants us to remember these things because he did this for us. Willingly submitted himself to what we deserved in our place and for our sins. But this cup that he holds before them that was full of the fruit of the vine, John tells us, this cup also has a new significance. It is the new covenant in his blood, which we'll look at in just a moment. But now we also see two more ways that we participate in the breaking of bread. I mean, I mean first is this, this mental issue where we are remembering. We, our minds are engaged, but the second is physical. Our very bodies are engaged. We are eating. And we are drinking. There's nothing mystical or magical going on here. The, the, the body and blood of Jesus, when blessed or provided for you or prayed over before we give it in the church, does not become literally the body and blood of Jesus. So, so that would be something we very much disagree with the Roman Catholic Church. These are elements. These are examples of what it is. However, however, many people have experienced something far-reaching physically in the breaking of bread. So when we partake, we, we, don't, we don't say, well, this is, these wafers aren't as good as sourdough. <laughs> this, this is his body that we are physically eating and swallowing and partaking of. We then participate in one last but amazing way really beautiful way in verse 26, for often as you eat and drink, there's the physical part, often as you eat and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. One of the things I love about our Good Friday service, it really is, our Good Friday service is really just one long extended communion service, Lord's Supper. And we invite men and women in the church to bring a word, bring a prayer. Uh, we, we actually ask people because we, we have to encourage people to, to participate in this way, to, to read a scripture throughout the way. But we always ask people, anybody, come prepared just to pray, to read a psalm, to participate. What are we doing? With our lips, we are proclaiming the death, burial, and yes, resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's one other thing we are doing. You see what it says here? the Lord's death until He comes. We, as the church gathered and scattered, when we proclaim this and we talk about the communion of the Lord's Supper, we are saying to the world, listen, one of the reasons why we're doing this is to remember Him, to participate in this, but to also let you know He's coming again. And then, oh, there will be a feast. And there will be some new wine, we are told. So, most significant related to when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper was the occasion for Him and His disciples. He's eating His last meal, but it's the Passover meal with them, with the twelve, and it is is at the conclusion of this meal that He takes the bread and the cup in this way. It is significant in many ways, and we'll look at a few 
this morning. First, the shedding of blood has been being a picture of God's work to cover our sins throughout all of Scripture. This sometimes surprises people, but the first sacrifice actually occurred in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. It's often missed and overlooked. After Adam and Eve sinned, God promises that one day, even after that, God promises to find a way to redeem us, to forgive us of our sins, and, and to restore us to fellowship and communion with Him. And He promises that one day His Son will crush the head of the devil. And then before putting Adam and Eve out of the garden, we read these words. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God himself took one of his creation, his, an animal, and shed the blood of that animal so that Adam and Eve could be covered. It's not because it was cold there. It was because they'd already realized that they needed to cover themselves because of their sin and rebellion against God. So we see the first picture of that way back in the very beginning. And so as I was saying, many, many years later, when the people of Israel are in Egypt and under slavery uh, and uh, with Pharaoh and after many, many plagues uh, that were put upon him to force him to let God's people go, Moses and the people are told by God what they must do at this point. The people of Israel were instructed to take a young male lamb without defect into their household. And after four days, it was to be killed. The blood of the lamb was to be spread over the doorposts of the home, and the people were to feast on the lamb's roasted flesh with herbs and unleavened bread. This became the pattern for them up until the day of Jesus, and this is what he's actually doing with his disciples on this evening. On the night of the Passover, if blood were spread on the doorpost when the Lord passed over, death would not plague the household. In other words... God's judgment would fall on the Passover lamb and not on the Israelites. Exodus 12 covers these details. And that's exactly what happened. At midnight, the Lord God poured out His judgment, His wrath on the firstborn of Pharaoh and all of His people and including their firstborn animals. But He passed over the homes of His people including firstborn animals that were part of his people in their homes. In effect, the blood of these lambs that was shed redeemed the people of Israel by being a substitute for them and atoning for their sins. So the Passover is not only a powerful act of God to be remembered, but that powerful imagery pointed to the Passover lamb who's in the presence of the twelve on this night to come who is Jesus. The day after this meal with his disciples, Jesus would be sacrificed. His blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. But this time, this time, unlike the continual animal sacrifices that endured throughout the Old Testament, required of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, his sacrifice, listen, would be a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus died as a substitute. His blood covering, atoning for your sins, for my sins, 
for all of our sins, once and for all. That's the truth of the Scripture. That's what it teaches us. Again, the author of Hebrews puts it so beautifully. I just want to read it for you. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 12 to 18, we read this, speaking about this point. But when Christ had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying this, is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is the prophecy of Jeremiah, where this is the new covenant that God promised, surpassing the Old Testament. And then he adds, as a result of that once for all sacrifice, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more good news. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hallelujah. Amen. So, point number four is, and this is really beautiful, what exactly is this participation? We've seen, you know, some of the aspects of it, how we participate, who participates. What is it really Well, first, I have said this from the very beginning, we are participating in a sacred event, an event that, listen, neither you nor myself nor anyone else has any right whatsoever to participate in. This is by invitation only. It's precious, and it's sacred to God, and it should be to us as well. To fully grasp what this participation is, pardon me, we need to actually just simply go back one chapter in 1 Corinthians to chapter 10. Let me read you the words of Paul again in chapter 10, verses 16 to 18. He says this, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Look at these words. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participating in the altar? Yes, they were, over and over and over again. For what? The atonement of their sins. This is something else. This is something else. It's marvelous, marvelous language, isn't it? Does it remind you of anything? Does it, does it not remind you of the high priestly prayer of Jesus, that we would be one? Does it not remind you of us being perfectly one? Does it not remind you of what we saw last week? You know what? It should. Do you know why? This word is a, just translated a different way. It is the word fellowship. It is the word koinonia. That's what this participation is. This is you and I being invited 
to have the most intimate fellowship, koinonia, we could possibly have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ Himself. As the body around His blood and around His body. It's a beautiful picture. I hope it will encourage your heart today. But I have to leave you this morning with number five. And again, it is under the title of, This Supper is Sacred. Paul has to complete his instructions with these words, beginning in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves, himself or herself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The idea that we should get here is that as we approach this table, as we approach these elements, we need to remember. We need to remember that we were sinners saved by the grace of God, by the work of Jesus Christ alone on the cross and in our place and for our sins. We are being sanctified today. We still sin. But John tells us he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess our sins. So we must examine ourselves. This is also telling us you do not need to be perfect. Good news? Why? No one is to come to the table. But we must remember it's sacred. And we must remember, we must think about it, and approach wisely. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. Friends, he's talking about Christians here. That is why many of you look at this, are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are, this is the important word, disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's hard sometimes for us to understand that the God of the Old Testament is the same God in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He is. He will judge sin. He will discipline the sin of a child of His with sickness and possibly death. It's for our good. It's for our good. Paul concludes with these words, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Do this together. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. No, it'll be for your good. And then he says, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. They'd obviously written them a letter with all kinds of issues and questions that they had. And he said, I'll deal with those later. This is critically important. I hope that's been a blessing to you today. I'm going to pray to conclude our message today, and then I'm going to ask Pastor Rudy to come up and lead us into um, the breaking of the bread, into giving thanks for the bread this morning. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much, Lord, for this day. Holy Spirit, I thank you for everything in this, even for our technical difficulties that cause us to have to 
think and refocus and um, stay committed to the Word of God and to the preaching of the Word of God. So I thank you for helping me and all of us with that. But I thank you more than anything. Oh, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of what we've, we've looked into this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you submitted yourself willingly to the cross, to everything surrounding the cross on that day, to everything, the humiliation, the mocking, the scorning, everything, the pain, the suffering. Just incredible love on display. So we thank you. We, we have nothing uh, uh, to offer in, 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 that is con- in any way comparable to this. But Lord, we want to offer you our lives in return for your life. We want to offer our lives to you. So Lord, we need your help. Holy Spirit, we need your help that we may be able, may be able to offer ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our wills, every little bit of us completely and wholly to you. I thank you for how you're teaching us through this series. I pray that it will be a blessing to our church family. I pray that we may grow individually and corporately from this. I pray for our unity in this. So I thank you for this time together, and I pray that you would just bless us now as we go to partake together. And I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen.